You're now listening to the TaxSmart REI Podcast, the number one tax podcast for real estate investors. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the TaxSmart REI Podcast. In case you missed it, we recently started the Major League Real Estate Podcast where Brandon Hall and co-host Dylan Brown explore complex tax, legal, and investing issues for syndicators, fund managers, and large-scale operators. So in today's episode, we'll be doing a crossover which explores investing in small bay industrial assets with Daniel Krawski of Obsidian Group. Daniel leverages his extensive knowledge of small bay industrial to present a strong case as to why the asset class is positioned well for future success and as well as why many investors overlook it. If you do enjoy today's episode and you do want more of the Major League Real Estate Podcast, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. The link will also be in the show notes, but for now, we'll dive right into today's episode. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to learn more about you and, and kind of talk about everything that you've got going on. So why don't we start by you just telling us about where you're at today and and kind of your journey to get there, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I got into real estate in a pretty unconventional way. I guess starting with where we're at right now, we have a couple different businesses. We have a brokerage company and an investment company called Obsidian Group, where we're buying mostly industrial and retail buildings. We're also brokering out of that business. And then we have another company called Onyx Strategic Partners, which is a, a construction and development business. Um, but prior to real estate, I was actually a professional ballroom dancer. Prior to that, what? I was a professional <laughs> poker player. Um, wow. So, yeah, I did not go the conventional route and basically had to start a business because I was unhirable in the market uh, without a college degree. So, <laughs> no, wait a second. Did you, did you go ballroom dancer to poker player or poker player to ballroom dancer? Uh, poker player to, to ballroom dancer. Poker was... So you were like, man, there's not a lot of money in poker, so I'm going to go to ballroom dancing? There was a lot of money in <laughs> poker. And then uh, if anybody's familiar, or you've ever uh, watched any of those documentaries, there was an event called Black Friday where the Department of Justice seized everybody's poker funds. And oh. the site that I played at was a, a group called Full Tilt Poker. And they were insolvent. They were taking players' funds and, and using them elsewhere. And I treated that account like it was my personal checking account because uh, it was so hard to oh, get man. large amounts of money on. So, you know, lost six figures uh, before I was 22. Jeez. Things wow. a little bit out of my control. But Did you um, ever collect on that? Did you ever get it back? I didn't. Uh, there was wow. a, a method to go through in which to get it, but... I think I was just so despondent and it wasn't clear in the initial yeah. like six months to a year um, that I never really took those steps. And then I think I reevaluated it and was past all the applicable deadlines, but it's still a hobby of mine. So uh, what led you to ballroom dancing then? That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's a pretty big pivot. Um, so did pretty well on the, you know, a lot of, a lot of math and poker, a lot of analytics there, but also really loved art, music, and when I left poker or was ousted from poker, uh, depending on how you want to put it, I'm like, I'm going to do something in, in performing arts. So I went to school for theater and was like, I'm going to go perform and do that and realized, why am I paying money to you know, learn how to do something when I could just go do it and get paid? 
And the lowest hanging fruit consistent job was ballroom dancing. But, you know, was teaching and competing and doing pretty well in that. And still was only making like 26 grand a year, living that starving artist <laughs> lifestyle. And uh, eventually decided I, I needed to be able to support myself and a family in some capacity. So I had a few folks recommend that I get into to real estate. I had a few connections. Uh, you know, poker guys are always like, kid, you got to put your money in real estate because it was like 2008, 2009, you know, towards the bottom of the market. And it always kind of stuck in my head. So I started working for a company and it was very interesting to me. Young guys, early 30s and they had like a $10 million portfolio. I'm like, I want to be like you guys. So started working for them, helping people buy residential properties. And then, you know, I was trying to learn how to underwrite deals and then going to management clients and trying to convert them into investor clients where we could help them underwrite and acquire duplexes to lease out to folks. Was starting to help folks flip houses and really quickly ended up selling a property to the owners of the, the company I was working for. And I made like an $1,800 fee and they made like 125 grand. I'm like, ah, I want to be on that side of the deal. <laughs> so I went to our investor clients and started raising money from them, buying houses, managing contractors, flipping houses, and did that for a number of years uh, while still being a residential agent. And then I ran into a couple mentors in our market who were like, hey, you seem pretty proficient, specifically for a residential real estate agent. Like, we think that you should consider commercial real estate. And instead of having to do a, an inordinate amount of volume to grow your business, you can do much bigger transactions, but uh, transactions that require a bit more sophistication. So from that point, I went out and did CCIM, which is a commercial accreditation that you can get and met with a few other people. And I think about three to six months later, I'm like, yep, this is what I'm doing sold all my residential properties, fired all my residential clients and said, we're doing commercial now uh, and started a business. And, you know, that's kind of been the, wow. the, the path since 2018. So you have a story similar to a lot of the people who end up in commercial, but explain a little bit what part of commercial drew you in, because I see a lot of people come at it from different angles, but I happen to know that you're very tenant centric. So maybe speak to that a little bit, how those tenant relationships, how you started forming those and what that first initial transition looked like? Yeah. And initially the thing that we lacked the most was data. You just don't know how the market actually functions because in commercial, there's not a clear path to investing like there is in, in residential. There's a lot of resources available for house hacking. You can go to a million different organizations and they'll try and, you know, there's a hundred coaches trying to sell you services. There's bigger pockets. There, there's not really a bigger pockets for commercial. It's really insular and, and somewhat arcane. People are trying to keep that information proprietary. So in a world where I didn't have a lot of that information, I'm like, we can start brokering. And our general philosophy was, we'll take on any client that we possibly can that creates an opportunity to learn no matter what the total fee is on the deal until all of our time is saturated. And then from there, we can start pruning. But first, let's get to the saturation point. You're making some money, but at the same time, you're also accumulating firsthand accounts as to how these transactions are, are happening. And then you just kind of keep laddering up and scaling from there and moving on to more sophisticated deals. To answer your question, what really got me interested in commercial was the depth of knowledge that you can employ to make deals work is the skill cap is much, much higher, we'll say. In residential real estate, I tend to think of it a lot as it's formulaic in that 
you can pull comps. A lot of these houses are relatively commoditized. And then it's just a matter of what's the house going to sell for? What can I buy it for? Uh, what's the amount of money that I need to be able to sell it at that price? Similar for rentals. Again, it's commoditized to what those lease rates are. Um, th there's a lot of velocity too, right? So it's like you have a tenant in, they're paying 1800 bucks a month. If they leave, what's the next tenant going to pay? Almost always 1800 bucks a month, maybe 1850. Yeah. You can push it a little bit. Whereas these commercial properties are so valued by the income that they generate that it allows you to move forward with asymmetrical information at times. Uh, asymmetrical information being, I have a tenant that wants to take 40,000 feet. You have a current liability, which is an empty building. My purchase of the building will immediately put it into the position of being an asset where it's cash flowing. Therefore, there's a little bit of value that we're able to add, but I'll then realize on the ownership side by placing that tenant. That's really cool. So. If I'm hearing this correctly, you have the kind of the air traffic controller position where you can see relationships forming on your end and build deals around those. And really, if you have in-house construction capabilities, which we'll touch on, I'm sure we'll touch yep. on that here in a moment, you really have that ability to kind of take a space and modify it for that prospective tenant. And, and to me, it sounds like in our previous conversations, you also have like a really strong focus on kind of small bay small bay industrial, at least to some capacity. That's one of the core competencies that you've identified within your firm. And yep. maybe walk me through how that plays into, I, I like your analogy of you have an empty space. Maybe it's a super large space. It hasn't been converted to, uh, I think of the term like subdivide, but that's probably not the right term for you guys. But, mm -hmm. but how are you kind of taking what that existing owner has and transplanting? And let's start with like the small bay strategy onto that, that existing building. And, and what are you looking yeah. at moving into that sort of thing? Yeah, I'll give you an example. So we purchased a building in, in Fridley, Minnesota, and it was a deal where the seller was looking to get, uh, it was a relatively small deal, but he wanted 1.5 million for the property. And he wasn't marketing it publicly, but he had got it in front of 10 plus groups that are purchasers of, of that type of product. And really where we were able to come up and meet him at his price was all of the leases in place were at $8.50 gross, uh, which backed out to like a $5 net rate. And all of this is, we can get into detail on cap rates and valuations and stuff, but effectively, if the building's valued on the income that it produces, if the entire market is viewing it as a $5 net rate, we have enough experience leasing this type of product because most folks don't actually want to take it on because the fees aren't very good. Uh, a couple thousand mm -hmm. bucks here and there, but we know that we could push rent. So we ended up moving them to about $10 a foot. So we effectively doubled the rents. So we overpaid based on the in-place income on the building, but the leases we also discovered, which is, this is atypical, but they had a clause that when the building sells, the new landlord can cancel every lease in the building uh, wow. and then release cool. it. I know, it was crazy. <laughs> so we went to the existing tenant base and we actually showed them where the market was, uh, where they currently were, and we met them in the middle because at the same time, we also have to sleep at night. And everyone, I think, thought that was a pretty fair deal. But in doing so, um, the rough value of that building is about 2.6, 2.7 million. So we were able to add almost double the basis of the entirety of the deal within three months of, of ownership, just because we knew what the, the actual market rates were. Can, can we dig into this example a little bit more? Because, okay, so you, so you, if I heard you right, you said that the market rents are $5 a square foot 
but you knew that you could push it to 10. And it sounds like with all the current tenants, you like met in the middle at seven and a half. Is that? So, so, but yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so not in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit more. A little bit more favorable, which is fine. But if, if the market's five, how do you double the market? Like, how are you pushing it to ten a square foot? Yeah. So in Small Bay in particular, there's an enormous inefficiency that exists in the commercial real estate brokerage, and it's pretty simple. It's that a lot of the big shops they work on a, a commission split where if you're taking on that space, you're usually part of a team. So that's the first component. Um, the house is usually taking 50%, 50 or 45% or so. And then the person, you know, if you have a deal that's going to pay you a six-figure leasing commission, a lot of the more senior folks on that team are going to focus on the high dollar figure deals. And these uh, small dollar figure deals are passed to the, the junior person on the team. Usually, you know, one of our, uh, our partners uh, was a, a broker at CBRE and his take home on a deal was 15% of the total commission. So after team splits and house cuts. So if you think about a $3,000 fee, which is all that's the, the, the total consideration uh, for leasing one small bay, you know, 15% of that is 450 bucks. So there's some dissonance between your expectation, you're, you're paying for $3,000 worth of service, but you're effectively realizing $450 worth of value because that's what it's worth to the individual doing the job. So that's the biggest piece is a lot of folks will post it online and they will wait for their phone to ring. Um, brief example of that, one of our guys who does a lot of our small bay leasing, his name's Ethan, he's the best at it. He took over a listing for a big institutional group in town and they're like, yeah, we've got these four vacancies and we haven't gotten a single inquiry in three months. He posted it on Craigslist, Facebook, et cetera, on a Sunday night. And he woke up to 150 unique inquiries on the space the next morning. He set up seven tours by Wednesday. By the time Wednesday got there, he had 10 and he leased all three of those bays by the end of the week. And the reason is we're just not stepping in the way and gobbling up all of his feet. We'd rather have our people being well supported. We'd rather have buildings filled for ourselves. We'd rather have a good reputation in the market. And at the same time, we also just want to know where all that data is, where these deals are actually getting done. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you can increase rents and you can increase above market because of the fee structure with your brokers. Yeah, sort of. And I, I would say that it's not so much that we're getting an above market rate as much as a lot of people who are reporting the data are reporting an under market rate because they're uh, unwilling to do the work to go discover where that is, if that makes sense. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So, so when you, so you bought this building that we're talking about, right? Yep. So when you bought the building, was the market rate $5 a square foot or were all the tenants paying $5 a square foot? All the tenants were paying $5 a foot. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. That I must have misheard you, but that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you knew that your leasing capabilities could push that to $10 a square foot. Thus, it was a deal for you, even though, you know, maybe the seller didn't have that capability. So they couldn't add that value. Yeah. They got overpaid on the income that they were able to generate over the asset. And then we underpaid relative to the income that we felt we were able to. And in a way, it's kind of a harmonious meeting in the middle with that seller where he got a good outcome and we had some value add. And, you know, you're always trying to price risk into a deal. We just can really use a very small coefficient of risk because we have so much experience in that type of product. Now, you have $50 million worth of industrial assets, right? 
a mixture of of industrial and retail, but predominantly industrial. Yes, uh, okay. some, some residential in there, but it's certainly not our focus. Right. And you said you offloaded your residential portfolio. And so I guess my question is the small bay industrial where you know you have asymmetrical information, you know that you can bring various competitive advantages to the table. What has that done for you in terms of understanding what you want to focus on going forward? Is it I mean, it sounds like it's heavily industrial. Do you feel like just industrial in general is just heavily mismanaged? People aren't looking at it like why industrial? Yeah. So in, in about 2018, we were trying to make a decision as to what our company vision was and what direction we were going for acquisition. And coming from a, a residential background, the normal temptation would be to look at multifamily because that's a pretty intuitive uh, transition. But what we did instead is we actually took a step back and we tried to make a decision agnostic to what our previous experience was, because none of it was so long term and, and relevant that it really should affect what we were doing. So we tried to focus on the asset uh, type that we thought had the most upside, the most beta, like long-term value of appreciation. And to do that, we just focused on where the demand growth was. So there's a couple things that were particularly appealing about industrial, which is, you know, e-commerce is a, a pretty important driver of growth in that sector. And it was really just like people were aware of that, but... COVID really kicked it over the edge, right? And that's where we saw rents start flying up like 25% year over year in some markets. Crazy rent growth. We also saw our ability to purchase it relative to replacement cost. You know, we, we could buy them below what it costs to build them. So if you have increasing demand and the ability to buy for less than it costs to replace, you have some upside over time, in theory, assuming demand continues to move in the direction that you're anticipating. So we really focused on that. Since we've been in that space, we've seen like institutional players were in our market, but they've really doubled down on it. So you have groups like Blackstone. I think they own like 15% of all the industrial real estate in Minnesota now. And there's a few groups where they're taking up like double digit percentages of all of the inventory that exists in our market. And that's significant because, you know, they have a lot better analytics than we do, but they also... As an oligopoly, uh, if you're a group that owns a, a vast majority, you can start setting rates uh, in a way to normalize it to the U.S. average. So we're still quite a way below U.S. average for rates. And that doesn't seem to be a trend that's likely to continue. I think we'll probably get there at some point. We also like the fact that it's not a consumer and professional relationship. It's a business on business transaction. So I think that there's a lot of consumer protection risk that exists in the multifamily market in general. Um, Ilhan Omar, who's our congresswoman, uh, actually proposed a bill uh, on the federal level that would give everybody who owned, I think it was two units or more, um, anybody who owned one of those properties, the government would have the right of first refusal to purchase that, not at the price that you are under contract for, but at the what they determined to be fair market value. Um, it got no traction. It's insane. But I'm just seeing things continue to move that way. I'm concerned when they talk about housing being a human right, what that means to, you know, how that restricts you as a landlord and your ability to push rents. We're seeing a lot of rent control instituted in our markets. And then in Minnesota, too, they you stop being able to do criminal background checks on folks as a way to disqualify them. So, you know, you could be living in one unit and next door to someone. And if they murdered someone, um, tough. Like it's not a reason to disclude them from 
renting in your building. And all of those things kind of lead me to believe that there's some risk there that hasn't been priced into the market yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're kind of like talking about more macro risk there. Cause I think, I think when everybody thinks about risk related to multifamily, it's economic vacancy or physical vacancy and adding the right value and meeting my cap rate projections and my pro forma. And especially in recent years where everybody was buying on bridge loans that are all now coming due. Right. We're seeing a lot of defaults show up there too. Yeah. But you're talking about something even larger, which is, I mean, I mean, you're, you're probably onto something that I don't see talked about very often at all. It's this idea that, you know, especially, especially as housing in general is at such low supply, Mm -hmm. rents have increased, housing prices have increased, the increase in rates has kind of slowed it down a little bit, but I mean, I mean, you look over the last three years and it's astronomical. So yeah, you're right. I mean, at what point do landlords start losing a lot of leverage, even in markets like North Carolina, where it's very landlord friendly is where I live, North Carolina, even in those types of markets where they start going, okay, wait a second, like we got to control the supply or in theory, control the supply. I don't think that it ever actually works, but I don't think whether or not it works has much to do with the policies that are created always. I think that there's a a certain populist section of the government that exists in both parties on both ends of the spectrum where they're just, you know, pushing short term policies that feel good. Uh, I think a lot of the economic turmoil that we're in right now is a great example of, you know, the the second trillion of QE uh, once we were feeling relatively stabilized with the idea that it would not create any inflation was kind of a laughable concept that anybody uh, in the business or uh, with a, a passing interest in economics knew was an inevitability. It's interesting you mentioned all this because obviously you and I being in Minnesota together, I think it really hits home for us especially. And a little early on in our conversation, we also talked about how, you know, traditionally you've had this Minnesota market as being your sole target market. Mm-hmm. Recently, you've decided to potentially start expanding and looking at other markets. Is is this a market by market consideration and this is going to drive kind of the direction of your company moving forward and maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, for me, I like to just know a market. I like to feel very comfortable with the data before we make any decisions. In Minneapolis, our market clears extremely efficiently. There's a lot of institutional money, which has driven a lot of broker shops to become sophisticated enough to be able to create models and marketing materials that appeal to the sophisticated institutional investor. Southwest Florida markets, like a 750,000 person MSA, so relatively small, but still a solid pocket of demand. For example, like industry standard, as you run your modeling on Argus, there's not a brokerage shop, to my knowledge, that runs Argus in the entire market in Southwest Florida. So, interesting. you know, if you're using different valuation metrics than somebody else, there might be opportunity there. And then the demand profile is incredible. Those rents are uh, 50 to 60% higher than they are in our market, and they've been growing pretty steadily. Wow. All right. So that's a good place to kind of pivot because I wanted to ask, so circling way, way back, we were just talking about Small Bay and we were talking about your various strategies that you have, or you maybe have asymmetrical returns and asymmetrical information because of that. Right. And so we have identified Small Bay as being one of those core competencies. 
And I just wanted to see if there was any others that you guys recently, I mean, you mentioned before we started recording here, uh, sports domes, but I just wanted to see mm-hmm. if there's, if you see your business as pockets of different core competencies where you've identified specific areas like that. Yeah, I, I would say the guiding principle is, again, just really understanding the demand profile. And if you have a, a better take than the rest of the market or, or a high resolution photo of what that demand profile looks like, you're in a pretty advantageous position. So a very easy deal that's another kind of illustration of that is uh, we purchased this building. Uh, the market cap rate was like a 6.5% cap rate. However, we bought it at the market value of the building from a cap rate perspective with the building being 70% occupied. But what we knew going into the, the deal was that the tenant in the building, uh, they were occupying 60,000 feet of the 80,000 feet or so, that they wanted to expand into the rest of the building as soon as they possibly could. So you buy it at a six cap and you know within six to nine months, you really have a 10 cap building, A class building, A class market, A class tenant. And the only reason we were able to find that deal is a different seller profile. You know, the, the original one, it was a guy who was not working deals very hard, you know, lower end of the sophistication. This is a hyper sophisticated group they bought this as part of a $2.8 billion acquisition and they just don't want to think about it because it's their only asset in Minnesota. So they were able to just unload it over to us. In terms of other deals, like the hardest thing we found this year is nothing makes sense. With interest rates being as high as they are, it's so hard to make anything work. But I think we're approaching a point now where the unleveraged yield on these deals, so putting no mortgage on it, is still a high enough coupon that it justifies acquisition beyond a bond or the stock market or anything else that you would typically expect. So I think that this is going to be a good year for purchasing in 2024. Uh, And I think that's probably what our acquisition strategy is going forward. That said, we're also looking at some kind of, I guess you'd call it like specialty projects. So one of those ideas is the sports dome facility. So in Minnesota, all winter long, there's a ton of pent up demand for folks playing soccer and lacrosse and Uh, football, basketball, whatever it is. Uh, Folks have these private sports clubs and they need a place to practice. But uh, fortunately, my wife, who's my partner in the the development company, has built some of these in the past. And we have a pretty good handle on pricing and what it takes to deliver. And their cost relative to a a typical building is you you should be able to put it up for about 60 cents on the dollar relative to a, a typical warehouse. And the rent discount that you're having to provide on that is is not this, not, not the same ratio. So there's a little bit of positive uh, alpha that you're able to create doing that. So we're hoping to be able to build on the low end at like a 12 cap, but I think more realistically around a 15 cap on that. And that's again, just the demand profile. Yeah. What is the unlevered yield that you were typically targeting on your acquisitions in the industrial space? Yeah, it's been very challenging to to identify in the last couple of years because it's been expanding at roughly half the rate of the Fed funds rate increase. But right now, if you want to have positive cash flow on an industrial asset, you need a cap rate in the nine nine and a half range. So that's about where your debt constants are. So typically we've been in the nines. That's been our return on cost metric. So all of the co- acquisition cost, money going into it, leasing fees, tenant improvements, any general base building work on the construction side that we need to do, all of that contemplated, we're looking for a nine and a half yield or better. And is that is that going in or is that after you've done what you need to do to add value? 
Uh, that's that's at stabilization. So once we've done all of our work, we've always wanted to be about there. And what do you feel needs to happen in the market in order for more of those deals to show up? Yeah, I think it's really just letting pricing come back down. Realistically, there's a, a real relationship between the cost of debt and what type of unleveraged yield there is, because so much of the market is based on the availability of debt. You know, the total aggregate demand is the availability of the actual hard cash and equity that exists in the market, plus the supply of debt. Well, they overproduced on the equity side, so now they're trying to siphon as much debt. And I think commercial real estate is probably the most effective asset type in the market right now. So what we're seeing is if you look at like a, a REIT trading in industrial, 40%, right? Peaked drop, uh, decrease in valuation. That's a hyper liquid way to look at it. Commercial real estate is very illiquid. And, you know, if you have existing debt, your rents aren't going down proportionately. So there's a lot of unmotivated folks. But we, we're starting to see some debt maturities come up. We're starting to see people wanting to just retire, get out of the business. They bought for you know pennies on the dollar in the first place, so they're happy to book a pretty substantial win. So we're seeing all these sellers with their nails dug into the floor getting dragged towards these lower prices, which is just where the market consensus is. Uh, I can't tell you how many buildings have been listed and... You know, they'll go through their formal process, offers due by this time, and then we respond and the seller sees where all the offers come in. They just decide not to sell. I think folks are starting to come together on that. And, and I think we're starting to see more transactions starting to pick up. Just a quick, probably rookie question is, what is the difference between small bay and large bay? Or is there even such a thing as large bay? Yeah, uh, no, that's the exact right terminology. So small bay is... It's a, a scaling definition based on who's looking at it. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. If you're a big broker and you're doing a lot of industrial space, you'd call small bay probably anything 15,000 feet or less. But what we're finding is that the smaller the bay size, the higher the dollar per foot premium is that you get on it. Interesting. Meaning, you know, a lot of folks just have a, a budget that works for them and their business per month. And if the space has utility, they're comfortable writing a check every month for that amount of money, and they know that they're still going to be profitable. Whereas if you're looking at 100,000 foot users, there's a lot of folks developing that type of product right now, and it becomes more of a commodity. So you have you know, tenant reps and people on their real estate leasing teams that are you know, helping inform them where kind of things work out to on a dollar for, per foot basis. Whereas a lot of small base stuff, like uh, some of the product that we have, for example, if it's zoned auto, there might be one availability in an entire city. So that's kind of the distinction there. Um, the smaller, the better. 2,000 feet seems to be kind of the magic point where you're really maximizing what you're able to get. And it's a similar concept to what you see in multifamily, right? Micro units on a dollar per foot basis tend to be a higher rental amount than the three bed, two bath stuff that folks are, are building. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you recently, relatively recently launched a fund with the entire thesis of acquiring small bay industrial, right? Uh, we have not launched a fund, um, okay. but we are contemplating doing something like that. I don't know. Contemplating. If okay, for... that's right. okay. 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 Uh, you know, just general solicitation stuff I'm always worried about, but um, we don't have anything there yet, but maybe being overly cautious, but what I will say is I think that it's a very good time to set up and, and be as well capitalized as possible to go acquire in this market in, in 24. 
totally get the non-solicitation and all the SEC issues that go along with the fund and not wanting to say something on the air. But we do see a lot of people moving into this kind of structure. And I'm curious on your thoughts for what you've seen other people doing. With the shift in the market, is there a need to change the type of, whether it's a debt fund, equity fund, is there a need for a new type of fund in the market? Yeah, I think so. I think what I'm seeing regularly from, you know, we have a lot of friends who run funds and and are raising money right now. And what I'm seeing happening in the market is they are going out and they're saying, we're buying deals at these prices and we're getting these types of rents and here's where debt is. And right now, this is what cap rates are like. Uh, This is what we're able to sell them for, basically. But what we project is that there's going to be a 100 basis point reduction in cap rates by the time we sell this in 2028. Um, And I think Ray Dalio always says, like, whoever lives by the crystal ball is destined to eat glass. Um, (laughs) I think that's a tough thing. It's like, how high resolution (laughs) are you really able to project? What buildings are going to sell for in multiple years from now when you have all this conflict at the Fed and the Treasury? I don't feel comfortable doing that. So... What I think makes the most sense, what I'm most interested in pursuing is I think you present all of the data uh, related to where the long-term upside is in the market, um, where a lot of uh, other folks are projecting rates to go. You can make inferences uh, from that as to whether or not the market will go up and what type of timeline that's going to happen under. But anyone's guess is as good as anyone else's. I mean, how many times have they been wrong about what's going to happen this year, uh, like a quarter previously? So what the way that we're trying to think about it is we're saying the overall yield on deals has increased from an unleveraged standpoint. Therefore, let's purchase buildings in, in a way where we're coming in and de-risking them as much as we possibly can by bringing no debt to the table. And all we're going to project is what type of yield we're able to get on that unleveraged purchase. So what's the cap rate today? If it's a seven and a half cap deal, that's a seven and a half percent return on that cash that you're able to get each year. That's a pretty good dividend to get on anything, particularly if you believe that there's a long term upside in value coming. And without having to project exactly what that looks like, I think that's enough of a compelling story to get folks moving into that asset. I think that we are towards the bottom of the market. I think that 2024 will be very eye-opening as to where that's coming. But I would imagine that if you're purchasing buildings in 2024, over a a 10, 20-year time horizon, you're not going to regret that decision, particularly if you're adequately mitigating risk. And that's kind of how we're looking to proceed. So kind of like playing, continuing that example, that seven and a half cap being a pretty good dividend today, what over the next five to seven years or or however long this investment cycle is for small bay industrial, what would actually create that liquidation value to decrease and thus like reduce the IRR over the hold period? What sort of market factors would would drive the price down or even negate the value that you think that you can add? Like what what are the risk factors here that maybe we haven't touched on yet? Yeah. And the only one I can think of is a decrease in demand from either the space side, which is the tenant side, decrease in rents, or a decrease in the desirability of it as an investment vehicle in general. The only reason uh, it would likely be less valuable as an investment vehicle would be if the the demand for the space starts to decrease. Are these like unique enough where 
if I ask what would cause the decrease in demand, there's a blanket statement for that, or are these so unique that it's really just property by property? Yeah, I think it would take like for some of our stuff, you know, there's there's some obsolescences that could take place, for example, which would affect the demand market. For example, say we do away with cars in general. Yeah, um, that's going to be something that ends up removing a lot of demand from the market. And to me, it's almost it'd be something so catastrophic and, and all environment altering that it's really hard to conceive of at this point in Small Bay in particular. We've worked out pricing and developing this because we're trying to, particularly when rates were low, we were really trying to find a way to get as much inventory as possible. And we we're coming up with roughly like $150 a foot to build this product. We're buying it at $100 a foot right now. Wow. So I, I feel like it's a pretty, and, and that's market. These are listed properties. Yeah. So I, I feel pretty comfortable that there's some stability in that until we get to a point where you can start replacing it for a commensurate price. What would you say people most misunderstand about small bay industrial? Well, I think industrial in general is such an enormous blind spot to people because housing is very intuitive. Everyone lives in a house or an apartment or it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. We all interact with that on a regular basis. Retail, who hasn't been in a store? Very, very rare. And then office, to some degree, almost everyone's been to an office in some capacity or another, um, even if they don't work in one necessarily. But industrial, it seems to be only known to folks who are in manufacturing, engineering, transportation, logistics, those types of uh, businesses. So I think most folks don't think about it because it's not something that they have any familiarity with. But what I do find very interesting is that all of the institutional equity seems to consider it to be the darling of the investment market right now. I, I go as far as to say I see in the long term or sometime in the next 10 years, the cap rates for industrial real estate being the lowest uh, amongst all the assets and, and kind of beating multifamily. Because uh, again, with multifamily, there seems to be a lot of governmental risk, but also you're dealing with gross leases uh, all the time. Like those like, operating expenses go up, you're dealing with an inflationary market. You've locked folks in for a year, sometimes two years. Sometimes they can't afford a higher rate because you know, wages tend to be a lot stickier than business revenues are, so they can't always keep up in the same speed. So, yeah, I, I think that's the biggest piece that people miss. And then within our industry itself, I think Small Bay, most people just don't think it's worth all the trouble that you have to go to to get these spaces leased up and optimized. And for us, it's it's definitely worth it. Uh, you know, we're, we're not living on, you know, tiny little margins of total assets under management. We're actually material participants in these deals ourselves. So we can get a 50% increase in value. We're not looking at it and saying, all right, we got 50 bips of fee on this thing. We're like, yeah, we, we got a 50% increase in our, our total uh, investment. Like, let's say that I'm listening to this episode and I'm like, man, this sounds awesome. I want to get into small bay industrial. I mean, is it hard for new entrants to come into the market? Because I mean, you've talked very briefly and somewhat high level about some of your competitive advantages. And you mentioned the the scope of the tools that you can deploy to get deals done. I got to imagine that being that entrenched in this type of an asset that everybody's overlooking or that it's their blind spot, they don't understand very well is also highly appealing. It's, it's part of the what makes it all work, I guess. So if you were coming into the market like would I would I absolutely get my clock clean because I don't have any of these uh, these competitive advantages? Or, I mean, how do I make that successful for myself if I'm like, yeah, I want to I want to buy some small bay industrial? 
mm-hmm. you know, where do you start? Yeah. So I've gotten to speak on a couple panels um, around residential and, and industrial investing and stuff. And what I always say is I'm like, the first step on all of these is to understand what demand is. Because if you don't understand the demand profile of the space that you're looking at, you might be looking at the greatest deal in the world, but you wouldn't be able to recognize it even if you saw it. So I think a lot of people focus and start by trying to find an opportunity without doing the initial study that you need to do to, to be successful. Maybe going back to poker, it's like you, you want to start playing poker, but you haven't learned, you know, what the hand equities are, or what hands you should be playing preflop. Like go do a little bit of studying first, and that's going to help produce a lot better results over time. So the easiest way I think to get into it would be first, uh, you can go on LoopNet, you can go on a lot of different kind of public resources and read what buildings have sold for and just start getting a basis on a per foot uh, from, from a per square foot standpoint. The nice thing about industrial real estate is more so than any other asset type, it is a commodity. It's not as location specific as certainly retail or office or, or multifamily. You know, this is a place where people go to work. They don't always need visibility off a major intersection in the same way. So rents are relatively uniform across the metro for similar products. The range of rents in small bay, in my opinion, should be $8 net to $12 net. And that's really determined on, you know, what the, the square, if it's a 2,000 or a 5,000 foot bay, what the overall quality is of the, the building. And that's it. It's a pretty easy scale. Whereas in, in retail, you're going to have a dispersion of, you know, an $8 net rate to, uh, we own a shopping center. We're getting $2 net on one space, which was just an, a lease we inherited. And we're getting, I think, proposals at $65 a foot on the same campus. So that's hard to learn. <laughs> Industrial, much easier. <laughs> so in general too, like you don't have to worry about what TI packages look like and, and leasing commissions. That's a bit more uniform. If you're willing to list your own property on Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist, and it's a small bay under you know, 5,000 feet, you're going to be able to fill it yourself. You can sidestep a lot of the you know, knowledge that's required on, on the brokerage side. Um, there's value there, but I'm saying you can still get it done. But the biggest thing that I see people make mistakes on, and you know, we've had partners trying to push us into deals that we ended up not doing, which is you at some point have to understand what the functionality is of that space to a user. If you have a building and it's backed up to another building and you're trying to get a 60,000 foot space filled, and I know that's not small, babe, but for example, if you can't back trucks up into that building so people can load and unload, you do not have utility. That is a functionally obsolete building. And, you know, market vacancy in Minnesota is like 4% on industrial real estate. In reality, it's 0% on high quality functional buildings. And it's like 35% on the functionally obsolete stuff. So if you can understand the differentiation between those two categories as to what's functional and what's not, that's really what you need. Um, Understanding, again, how that leads to what those lease rates are. Uh, which doesn't take a ton of study. I mean, if you just talk to some folks who are leasing space, uh, if you have any friends in, in those types of buildings, just ask them what they're paying in rent and they'll tell you. Um, and you can start getting a good idea of that. And then I forgot my last point, but I'm sure it was really good. 
<laughs> well, I want to ask one follow-up question to that, and I won't. I won't make it too long. I just want to. I want to dive into that functionally obsolete piece because it sounds like to me, maybe as the novice listener, isn't that an opportunity then for somebody with construction capacity and capabilities to potentially make something of that or convert that building? How much of an opportunity is there, or what really do you do with a space like that that's functionally obsolete, or do you just tear it down? Yeah, I think there's some opportunity to reposition at times. But in general, I guess an interesting thing in industrial real estate right now is that the owner-user market is so much stronger than the investor market, meaning an owner-user will come in and they'll buy a building and the utility to their business is is so great that they are able to pay a 20% premium to what an investor would pay in general on average. So what ends up happening with those functionally obsolete buildings a lot of times is there's someone who sees an opportunity to purchase a building. There may be five buildings available for sale of, you know, call it a 50,000 foot building. There's maybe five for sale right now in Minnesota or in the Metro that are reasonably functional. So they end up just coming in and purchasing these buildings. So there is an exit for them at some point, but the cost to renovate relative to what a seller can be patient and try and get from an owner user it doesn't quite make sense. So what we see is that, that these functionally obsolete buildings continue to remain functionally obsolete and people end up working their business around the functional obsolescence versus it being remedied and brought back into the supply of functional space. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't found it. I've tried. I've looked at it. I've spent a lot of money uh, running down deals and conversions and I haven't found it yet. Your team hasn't officially done any sort of, I used the term earlier, subdivide. Correct me, is that the right term? If, if you were to take a larger space, call it 20,000 feet and convert it into four 5,000 foot spaces and rent them out individually, what would you call that? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable subdivide or we just demise it into smaller bays because um, really you're just running a fire rated uh, demising wall and, and cordoning that off. There's usually so little dollars and TIs that go into these deals. That's kind of the, the market expectation. So the rents are relatively low. You know, we're doing a, a 55,000 foot lease right now, a third party that our, our brokerage is. And the rate on that is $6.15 a foot, which is reasonable, like good market price for that space. But if I were going to try and get that rate and then demise that space out, I'm having to build um, you know, demising walls at $200 a linear foot. Uh, I'm having to put a new bathroom in there. I'm having to build out office, building out office for 10% of it. Call that, you know, $150 a foot there. Bathroom's going to be 20, 25,000. I'm probably going to cut in a new garage door for 20, 25,000. So pretty soon, uh, yeah, I'm getting a bit of a rent premium there, but my basis went up considerably. I'm up another 30 bucks a foot or so. It's not economical, especially considering that you could just take all that capital and go buy another small bay and just keep repeating the process. Yeah, that, that's my thought. My thought is right now uh, we're able to still buy. You have all these institutional groups coming in trying to buy the new functional stuff and they're you know pushing rents and, and driving the market that way. I feel like you want to try and do that and consolidate around small bay in our market and then over time allow those rents to continue to increase but control uh, some percentage of market share where it ends up being more and more significant because the cost to build is, you know, 50% higher than it is to buy the existing. And then, yeah, they're, they're already demised. 
Yeah, but to Dylan's point, maybe at some future point in the market where you've got so many of these obsolete buildings, there is no demand. And so then maybe that build out does become economical. Yep. And you'd be the first to jump on it because you're watching all these like a hawk, right? <laughs> Tried pricing all of them. We keep pricing them out and we just we can't quite get there. Few we've been close on, but I think we still need to see a slight decrease. And I guess the relevant part is the spread between it as it exists today in terms of what the rate is for a functionally obsolete building at like call it six bucks a foot. And, you know, once you demise it, it's it's nine dollars a foot. The bigger that disparity gets, the the more likelihood you're going to have of having successful projects there. So, Dan, we, we've talked about a lot. Uh, my question to you is over the next 12 months, what does it look like for you? You mentioned that you tried to deploy or you made 70 million dollars worth of offers this year. It didn't it sound like it didn't win any of them. Um, I mean, what, what do you hope? Oh, for that's the next one market. It sounds like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So what we're seeing is that I guess one step back. So I feel as though by being as active in the market as we are from so many different avenues, we see the trend line. I think a lot of times people are relying on data that comes from like a co-star or a CBRE market report, et cetera. And, you know, you'll get, just like a lot of things happen in, in the accounting world too, right? You get the, or, or the economics, it's like you get the Q3 data towards the end of Q4. So that's already a little bit of a lag in, in the data reporting. But also a lot of these deals take three to six months from the original contemplation of it to actually getting it signed up and people in there beginning to pay rent or, or a sale happening. So usually we think we get to be two to three quarters ahead of, all of the the conventional data. We're not the only ones. There's a million groups that are doing that. People who are active are doing that. But the problem is a lot of sellers of real estate are relying on that data. So by the time they get it, it's pretty stale. So the biggest challenge we had in 2023 was the trend line was moving downward. So, you know, we're wanting to buy here because we see what's happening and folks are still remembering up here. Um, 2024, we think folks are going to have finally gotten the memo. We think that things are going to level out around what we're seeing now, meaning I don't see a giant material decrease continuing from where I feel buildings should be valued at currently because it seems like they're done hiking the Fed funds rate. So in theory, we should start to have some stable debt, which means that's the time where the market will be bottoming out in theory. So our objective is to go out and start making offers now that the buyers and sellers aren't so far apart. Again, our goal will be hopefully to be acquiring as many of these deals cash as we can as a, a method of de-risking, but also producing the most yield. Because if you're buying a market rate deal right now, you can get a pretty good 7.5% yield on it. But every dollar of debt you put on it decreases your yield. So we're expecting things to stabilize and, and it's going to be a great opportunity to buy some trophy assets, some A-class new construction buildings. We'd like to look at some of those from an unleveraged yield standpoint, because there seems to be a lot of upside um, down the road in those. And then focusing on these small bay deals where we can add value. We think that you know adding value, doing a value add, creating alpha is also a great risk mitigant, right? Because if you buy something for a hundred bucks a foot and it's worth 120, if the market comes down as a whole, you know, say you're now at your hundred dollar a foot basis and everybody else would be at 80 or $20 a foot underwater. So that's kind of our thoughts. We're full steam ahead though. We're gonna try and gobble up as much as we can. 
I have one last question, which is, I want to take it back because you said you had two companies and then I'll hit the Streamline Spotlight. So you've obviously, we've spent this entire time talking about you guys at Obsidian, what you're doing with an industrial, your plan for acquisition, but you're rocking the Onyx hat. I want to hear, just give me a quick brief update on what that looks like for the next 12 months as well and how integrated is that? Or is that just a totally separate business for you? Yeah, very integrated. So it's doing all of the, the construction work on our projects. I think we've done about $5 million in construction on the buildings that we currently own this year. And then, again, my wife, who is the CEO of the company, she's done over a billion dollars worth of construction in her career and is doing a lot of really cool, interesting projects that she's passionate about as well. For example, she's building like an in-the-lake Minnetonka walking path for YZ and is retained by them as the city. But oh for 24, I think we're looking to, um, in theory, we have a, a deal that we're looking to green light pretty soon, which is a spec built, uh, or not a spec built, a build-a-suit, 120,000-foot uh, or so industrial building for a, a friend of ours business. And we'd build that with cash. And that'd be a great project to get off the ground, probably a $14 million project in general with a lot of city incentives and things coming in that way. Um, that would also be the focus of the, the sports dome uh, construction as well. And yeah, beyond that, she's, she's building a warehouse right now for a third party, predominantly focused on delivering our own projects because I'll be very quick with this, but I think, I think this is actually interesting to the listeners, which is construction is such an inefficient industry in general on average, because there's a lot of risk that takes place in construction and everyone is trying to price risk in to the deal because no one wants to take responsibility for that. And what I mean by that is when you see a bid for something in construction, a lot of times someone will have a 3% fee in there and they'll be reporting that as what their fee is. And to me, before starting this business and really understanding from her, I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm getting marked up. Everything else is a commodity and it's a price. But <laughs> every line item in there as well, you know, say it's a hundred thousand dollars worth of work, a lot of smart contractors are gonna say, well, let's guarantee it at 130,000. And then we have a little cushion in case we run into something that we're worried about. And they keep building in layers of additional fee and protection in there. It's, it's not really fee, but protection, which if isn't utilized becomes fee to the contractor. And they're also then going to an electrician and they're getting their number and that electrician doing the exact same thing. So there's all of these tranches of markup that are happening that lead up to the end consumer. And when you're on both ends of the deal, you don't have to incorporate that into it. Like the realization of all of that extra money as a protection on the construction side is less relevant if we're paying it from our left pocket into our right. So yep. that's been a huge, I think that's a critically important thing for people who are thinking about development or getting into construction. It is incumbent on you to understand what's really built into those numbers. How does that help you with the small bay investing? So less so there, because again, they're just generally pretty low work deal. Okay. Um, there's not a lot of construction there, but you buy a building and you know most people smoke these buildings to the filter. Uh, so to speak, where let the roof burn down, let the HVAC get to the get to the last you know year of their useful life, and let's let the masonry deteriorate a bit. And you come in and just do it right the first time, and you don't have to think about it anymore. So she'll come in and look at our buildings at acquisition and make sure that it's another set of eyes to make sure there's no risk or material defects that we need to be concerned with. Got it. 
that's super cool. Well, I know that could be another podcast in and of itself because last <laughs> time we talked about that, we started talking about manufactured construction. You know, we're seeing revolutions happening in the construction industry on a weekly basis where people like your wife, Jesse, who are going to be super pumped about that kind of thing, keeping their finger on the pulse of that market. Yeah. I think that could be a fantastic spinoff to this podcast. We could spend probably a whole nother hour talking about it. Absolutely. But uh, of course... We'll touch on that at some point in the future, but my parting question to you today, just because you've mentioned data so often in this podcast alone, but I know this is about you, like finding that that alpha in the information. I, I like to use the finance term there, the alpha yep. in the information. And, and so with that, I'm sure you guys are high utilizers of technology in your firm. And today's streamlined spotlight question is what technology uh, have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow that has made you or your team more effective? It can be pretty much anything. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Slack as a method of communication is a pretty good way to keep things focused and to allow people to communicate freely after hours without offending anybody. But I think the most important thing for us has been Argus, which is just software that helps underwrite deals more effectively and get them to an institutional level of standards, which is really the direction that we're we're probably headed here in the next couple of years is getting institutional equity put into deals. Um, yeah, it's been great. Love that. Well, I really appreciate the time today and we will certainly be continuing this conversation as soon as we can. Tomorrow lunch, actually. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, Dan, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks, See Brandon. You. Good to meet you and, and Dylan, always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.